Hello, ladies and men and non-binary friends. This is Symphony Sit Down, a show where we talk about living life as a millennial musician. I'm Sam Carl. And I'm Tyler Menzel. And we are your hosts. We're both conservatory-trained musicians living in Montana, of all places. Today, our topic is the season finale of the Billings Symphony Orchestra and Chorale 2018-2019 season, Beethoven and Brahms. I'd also like to thank our concert sponsor, John W. and Carol L.H. Green, our guest artist sponsor, Lynn Marquat and Jim Gutenkoff, and our 2018-2019 season sponsors, The Oakland Companies, our host hotel, The Northern, and our media sponsor, Q2. All right, welcome back to Symphony Sit Down. I am joined once again by the fabulous Sam Carl. Sam, how are you? Oh, yes. I am I am doing just well. Just, <laughs> just well. well. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I am loving the springtime weather. I I just love oh, this time oh, of year. Yeah. yeah. After after this Feb February, like oh god, oh, it was horrible. That's yes. uh, we can just pretend that February it was bad. and March really have never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just feels like winter has just like moved from like November, December, January to February and March. Like that, those are the worst months, and I don't remember that right. as a child. But you know, here right. we are. Well. We are here today talking about, that was a terrible drum roll, Beethoven and Brahms. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, give me a second after that. I have a hard time, like, you know, rolling my my eyes, so that was, that was that. (laughs) Beethoven and Brahms, though, I'm excited about that. So Beethoven and Brahms, we usually refer to them as the romantics. So I think it's important for the listeners to understand that, you know, we have these people called musicologists (laughs) and they like to put things into nice, neat little boxes. And one of the not so uh, neat boxes is the Romantic era, which um, both Beethoven, sort of, and Brahms, definitely, fall into. So Sam, what can you tell us about the the Romantic era? The Romantic era is more emotional rather than mathematical. And right before the Romantic era, there was the, the Classical era, which is Mozart, Haydn, and early Beethoven. But, um... Yeah, I would say that um, with the Enlightenment and the classical era, it was all about symmetry, orderliness, and just refreshing after the complexity of the Baroque era, which we talked about in our Modern Baroque Performance episode. But um, yeah, so then the Romantic, they were kind of tired of having it be a little bit barren emotionally and they're like conflict and strife and sadness i have i feel so much pain it's kind of like when you go through your emo phase in high school like that that's what romantic music is but just on like a classic level (laughs) oh you don't relate i had oh 
No, I, so, oh, see, I had, well, like, I have long hair again, but I had long hair, and I had black highlights when my hair was blonde. Think about that. I'm pretty sure that is not the definition of a highlight, but (laughs) I get where you're coming from. (laughs) Well, I got it applied like highlights. Fair enough. But, yes. Back to the Romantica, (laughs) though. Well, I think um, there's an so important yes. distinction in, um, well, we haven't gotten to this yet, but I'm making us get there now, is um, what the Germans were doing <laughs> in the Romantic era. Um, I, what right. were I they doing? If you, look, you know, if you look at the Italians, right, the Italians are kind of, they're known for their opera, right? When I think of Italian yeah. Romantic music, I definitely go to opera. You know, Donizetti, Bellini, Verdi. Um, Rossini, all of those folks. Um, And similarly... The Enies. All of the people that sound like pastas. Similarly with France. I mean, they were, they had their own, like, opera and ballet thing going on. Russia, definitely opera and ballet in the Romantic period. But the Germans were kind of focused on um, the, like, the sonata form, right? Sonatas and symphonies. These things that have these these kind of predefined formats. They were just reinventing the wheel. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think a thing to add about the German composers, I think they all had some sort of maximalist tendencies. You know, you have Bruckner, which just like the sheer length of the symphony is just mm-hmm. incredible. You have Wagner, whose extensive use of chromatics and length. I mean, oh the goodness. ring cycle, come on. Opera for, like, five days? Like, I mean, yes, but also count me out. Uh, and then you have Schumann, who just kind of was a little insane. Thank right. you, Sibylis, for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, um, you also have um, Richard Strauss, who was just, like, the difficulty It was just so insanely hard, but it had such a musical idea. So I think the Germans really had, like, transcendental thoughts and really, they really wanted expression and maximum. It was, there was never, they were not understated. I mean, just look at Beethoven's, look at Beethoven's dynamics and how they changed from fortissimo to pianissimo in like half a bar like how do you even do right. that physically so yeah that that's my yeah that's well my i think too it's it. super interesting that you know it would it's almost like the the germans are trying to attribute emotion to something that that doesn't inherently have it whereas you know everywhere else when they were more focused on opera you know, operas have situations and plots which are already kind of wrought with emotion, right? And then it's just, it's up to the composer to to maximize the emotion that's already given. Whereas I think the Germans were taking something that was, you know, I mean, it's just like A-A-B-A, you know, how do you, how do you give emotion to that? And they totally found a way to do it, which I think is really the remarkable thing about German romanticism. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But let's jump into Beethoven a little bit, since he's kind of our odd man out. I mean, Brahms, like, pretty neatly fits into that box of romanticism, um, especially with the dates that are given to it. But Beethoven, we talked about a little bit earlier, um, he kind of spans across both the classical and the romantic. So um, why don't we talk about the, the different periods of Beethoven? 
So the different periods, we have the early, which is his classical, late classical period, where it sounds like it could be maybe a little Mozarty, but, you know, he's a little, he, little too edgy for that still. And uh, then his most famous time period is his heroic period. That's where Symphony Number no. 5 comes into play. That's where all of the piano concerti come into play. And it has a lot of classical influences, but it starts being more and more emotional. And then you have his late period, which is Symphony 9, the late string quartets, the Grossa Fuga, um, the late piano sonatas. And that's more about, he has less of a melody and more of musical ideas, musical fragments that just, that just work because he's right. Beethoven. I think that's a great way of putting it. I actually took a, a um, an entire course on the Beethoven piano sonatas when I was doing my master's at, <laughs> at Juilliard. Riveting. It was actually a really fascinating class, but no, we talked about these these kind of three distinct periods in Beethoven's music. And, um, you know, I think looking at the piano music gives you a, a picture into everything else that was kind of happening. But yeah, like you put it, I mean, when he first started out, he was definitely um, imitating a little bit. Um, Haydn, for sure. Um, he definitely had an awareness of Mozart. Um, but I think it's... Beethoven was one of those people who, from a very very early age was trying to put his own stamp on things, for sure. Um, and so even though he is maybe emulating bits of Haydn and Mozart, you still get that like small glimpse into Beethoven um, in his early works. And yeah, the middle stuff is just, I mean, it's crazy. That's what everyone knows Beethoven for, is just, um, that's where... that's where all of these great pieces come from, the great bits of innovation, um, you know, his, his big hits, if you will. And then toward yeah, the end of yeah. his life, I mean, I think most people know this, but, um, Beethoven was, was pretty much completely deaf by the end of his life. Um, and for a good portion of those, those last couple of years. And so I think, um, you mentioned that we get these like less fleshed out melodies and more of these just musical ideas that seem to be woven together. Um, I don't want to say that was completely caused by his his hearing loss, but um, no, that's a great point. I didn't right. Think I think it, it was like it, you know, Beethoven was forced to grapple with you know, like um, maybe I have these these musical ideas, but um, you know, not being able to hear them fully fleshed out kind of caused him to be innovative in maybe a different way. Yeah, yeah. You you just have to like. I think you just have to know music so well at that point where you just know, you see an interval on the page and you just know what it sounds like. And like, that's like terrifying for me. Yeah, to even think I about. literally could not, if I had, if I lose my hearing, my music career, I can definitely say would, would come to an end. It's just, I don't think people realize how difficult it is to, to be a musician without the, the ability to, to hear not to say that folks don't do it and how, but um you know beethoven yeah. is just one of those people he's incredible it, it, you know just as a as a person and as a composer but then when you know that extra little tidbit about it it just makes everything seem so much more um just incredible and impossible yeah 
his tenacity is, yes. is outstanding. His resilience, you know, he has that famous letter where he, you know, is basically mm-hmm. a suicide note. And, you know, and it was around the time where his nephew, I believe, kind of disowned him, doesn't, didn't care for him anymore. And he was gonna, he was gonna kill himself. And, you know, he pulled through and like, look at all the music he gave the world because he just didn't take his life. I mean, like that to me is huge where, you know, we, we for everybody who has depression out there, like just think about what you can do if you just pull right. through, you know, and cause he like, like, Oh, to joy. And the Grossa Fuga, these like huge pieces that like have made impacts and have made waves and huge string, big string quartets nowadays, like still like that's the, that's the first hurdle. Can you play every single Beethoven right. string quartet? No, we'll start working <laughs> on them now. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, we talk about Beethoven's um, kind of personal struggles. And I, I think that's, Again, not to say that those things didn't happen in the, you know, in the generations before, but this is the first time where I think people started to really talk about them in an open way. Um, you know, you have authors like Goethe who are, you know, just writing these very emotional yeah. things like suicide issues like that are very much at the forefront of these kind of romantic era novels. Um, it, I think it it must have just been an interesting time to be alive. <laughs> but let's let's go over to Brahms. Um, Brahms was certainly not immune to his emotional troubles, um, right? Oh, I mean, no. I I tend to think of Brahms as this very serious guy, and I would imagine to some extent he was. But another composer, um, Schumann. He had a wife, Clara, and Brahms was just totally obsessed with her. Yeah, and isn't it just such a a blow to you when, like, (laughs) Schumann eventually contracts syphilis and and dies and goes crazy, and Clara still stays with him and does not go Right, it is like your total classic (laughs) unrequited love story. Oh yeah, and it, it's it's and you see like in in journals and their letters that you can that you can look up that you know they I, they totally had a, oh. they had a thing they they, they were, were pen into each pals. other and you they were they were a little they were <laughs> romantic pen pals um, but you you like you wanted them so badly to be together not that Schumann wasn't great but you just you know. There's something, I think Brahms, like, I think everybody identifies with Brahms in a way. Has anyone made a movie about this yet? There is the Schumann's movie um, that, uh, there is a movie about the Schumann family. And I can't remember if Brahms in it. My parents watch it all the time. Let it be known that I am claiming the movie rights to this. Because it would be a brilliant (laughs) love story. (laughs) Let's make it a modern day romantic comedy. (laughs) Rom-com. So with Brahms, though, I think it's going back to Beethoven for a minute. Beethoven just created this like huge shadow over the music community. I mean, like totally created ripples across the world. And I think for a long time, like everyone kind of had to grapple with how do I compare to Beethoven or like, how do I 
make my mark in the world now that Beethoven existed. And I think Brahms, again, like, for whatever emotional reason, he definitely felt that impact. I mean, Brahms was a composer from a a young age, but in terms of his symphonic output and and the works that we really know him for, um, those works came quite a bit later in life. Um, I mean, I think he wrote, by the time he wrote the first symphony, he was probably into his 40s, I think. Which, yes, you know, yeah. like, well, 40 is the new 20, sure. But yeah. <laughs> back then, you know, when the life expectancy was maybe, like, your mid-40s, 50s, something like that, like, time's running out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You only have so much to live, right. come on, make more. Um, but, yeah, I it took him, like, from the beginning manuscript, like, 14, 15 years to compose right. symphony which is one. literally half of and, my life. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, and, you know, Brahms even stated in like a journal, I believe that it took him longer, like from the very beginning. And a lot of the first, first, first sketches of symphony number one turned into his piano oh. concerto. And he used that to make his piano concerto. I just read that mm. recently, actually. Um, which I found fascinating because when you listen to him back to back, you're like, okay. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to have to go listen I, to the I two of those you. back to back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating. You, he was totally in the Beethoven shadow, but, and, but you just, you're like, come on, Brahms. Like, you're so good. <laughs> you're so good. Your orchestration is right. beautiful. You write good viola <laughs> <all> parts. <laughs> well, I think too, you know, folks definitely know Beethoven and Brahms, I think more so for their symphonic pieces. Um, there may be a couple other things with Beethoven. Like, I would imagine everyone's real first introduction to Beethoven is either the Ode to Joy from the Ninth Symphony or to Fury Lease. Um, people's first introduction to Brahms, I like, I can't think of a piece that is like, you know, the Brahms piece that everyone would have to know. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right, really but good point. <laughs> I think, you know, definitely in the music world, the two of them are known for their symphonic output. But I mean, the reality is, is that they, yeah. they both have such a huge output of things that are non-symphonic pieces. Um, what are some of your favorite non-symphonic pieces of the two of them? You know, I am a Brahms lover forever and always. I think we all, I think every music The question is, does he love you back? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag Clara Schumann. Um, (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, I really like his piano chamber work. So the piano quintet in F minor. Um, and I love the clarinet trio that Brahms also wrote. There's a viola transcription that Brahms did himself. Okay. Don't fight me. Um, but it's beautiful. And, you know, I, I just think Brahms just knew orchestration, even like when you listen to the chamber works and you listen to the full scale symphony, he knew how to balance, like he knows and everything sounds rich and full and like, like ganache like it's just so delicious you know and beethoven is different beethoven gives you more gut-wrenching you know it gives you more of a 
you get the chills up your spine. You're not as in, as, you're not like in, I feel like in Brahms, you feel more musical ecstasy. And then in, in Beethoven, you, you kind of, it's like watching a, right. a thriller. You're watching, you're watching, it's not a wash over you. You're, you, you, you're waiting for those parts. I like that to are think epic. that Brahms is like melted chocolate. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's just like, it's just this liquid thing and it's delicious. And, you know, there's like everything just kind of weaves together yeah. into this delicious molten, um, Love you know, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. This molten romantic goo. And Beethoven is more like the chocolate bar, right? It's definitely, it's got edges. Everything yeah. is a little bit more. Um, defined, um, definitely edgy, not, you know, and it's still like, it's a good product. Like I still like, I want to eat it, but Brahms is definitely like, he took Beethoven and took it a step further. He was like, I see your chocolate bar. I'm going to melt it and create this, like, (laughs) you know, this silky ganache. Uh, That was a RuPaul's Drag Race reference. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I, yes, yes. I think, I think, I yeah, I see Beethoven as like a, a Snickers bar where you're like, you go to Walgreens and you're checking out all of your, <laughs> you're getting your moisturizer and your face wash, all of that good stuff. And then you're just like, I deserve a Snickers bar and you grab it. But then like, you don't want anybody to see it. So you smash it in your face, like in the car. And then, so like you kind of, it's more of like a, it's more of like a private enjoy, enjoyment, Beethoven. And then Brahms, you're like, I don't care. Anybody can watch me eat this. This is amazing. <laughs> now, I want to give you my favorite non-symphonic yeah, yeah. pieces because we conveniently skipped over that. Yeah. <laughs> now, so when you and I were playing that ballet down in Sheridan, we had a, like a little listening session of the um, the clarinet sonatas oh, I love by those. Brahms. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. I know you have definite feelings about yeah, this. I do. <laughs> <laughs> because they were later transcribed for viola. But, and Brahms did um, that as well. Right. You know, I think this this really points to Brahms' innovation, though. Because oh, yeah, those definitely. are really... I mean, that's that was like one of the first big uses of the clarinet as a solo instrument besides maybe the Mozart clarinet concerto, right? Mozart loved the clarinet. He hated the flute. Thank you very much. But loved the clarinet. <laughs> Brahms, too. I mean, it was... He he kind of came into that later in life. You know, like, oh, the clarinet. And so he wrote this gorgeous music for the clarinet. And I think the reason that everyone else, including violists, play it, flutists play it. I've heard a trumpet player play it on flugelhorn, which <laughs> won't say anything about that. But... <laughs> You know, I think it's just, it's a tribute to how beautiful the music is that Brahms wrote that is non-symphonic, right? That has that more chamber mindset. Is this just, it's so intimate. Everything between the pianist, between the clarinetist or whatever instrument is playing mm -hmm. it. um, it, There's something that is just so beautiful and so Brahmsian about it that when I think of Brahms, I always go back to the Brahms E-flat major clarinet sonata. That Uh, to me is like quintessential. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. I agree with that. Oh, those sonatas are great. I'm just thinking about them. (laughs) 
<laughs> but let's like we, we skipped over Beethoven chamber music. Oh, I think did. the biggest thing, I think the biggest thing with Beethoven chamber music would have to be the string quartets. See, you're lucky because you yeah. all have so much music written for strings by Beethoven and Brahms. Yeah. Yeah. The poor flute is just simply exists in the dreams of symphonic music. Yeah, true. <laughs> you just, you just, yeah. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, tell me about all this music I don't get to play. <laughs> um, I, I, one of my favorite quartets, I think, would be the Opus seventy four Harp Quartet, and it's called the Harp by a publisher, not by Beethoven. I'm not sure he would have liked that, but called the Harp because there's a pizzicato theme that passes throughout all the instruments. Kind of like you think of that famous picture of Beethoven with the lyre. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's where the publisher was going. Like, I see you, publisher, but I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, I, but I like it because it just like, it's, I think it's the perfect melting of his edginess and just like tragic sense of his later works. But also the, the energy that his early works have. And, you know, they're in the first movement, there's just this, like, this screaming that the violin, first violin has to do. It just measures where everybody else is just, like, pizzicatoing and just, you know, playing chord notes. And they just have this, like, huge excerpt of just 16th notes just, like, smashing their violin, mm. like, jamming out. And, you know, it's just those those moments where, like, you can, you you feel it in your body that, like, you know how that person feels, and I think, you know, with the string quartets, you just you just know what kind of mental state Beethoven is in when he's written all of them. Sure. Um, so I think that's definitely my favorite one. I also like his first ever one, um, Opus 18, number three, which is the first one he composed. Um, that one's a very beautiful one. Um it just has that that seventh interval at the beginning that the first violin has, and it just makes you smile. Thinks of spring. It's it's warm out finally, <laughs> and I've been I've been like I've caught myself humming some Beethoven, like the spring sonata that oh, the violin yeah. has. I've been humming those themes because I'm like, oh, the birds are coming back, and I can see the grass even though it's brown. Right. See, I am more <laughs> familiar with the sonatas because surprise, surprise, there are flute transcriptions of those. Um, I have to admit, I am not nearly as familiar with the Beethoven string quartets. I'm sure if I heard them, I would recognize them, but like, yeah, opus numbers, titles, totally lost on me. <laughs> but in my other life as a, as a pianist, I definitely, well, like I said, I studied the Beethoven sonatas from a kind of a scholarly point of view. I also studied um, a good amount of them as a pianist. And I mean, for me, I think the Beethoven piano sonatas, like Beethoven was a pianist. And so there's something that's just very raw about his piano work. Yeah. Um, yeah. That not. Or maybe like a hammer, like smashing the keys. Right. A bit a few times, you know, but. I mean, like there's a reason <laughs> that every pianist plays the Waldstein's uh, sonata, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> right. There are just, there are just moments like that where, you know, it's just, I could just see Beethoven sitting down and kind of like emoting at a piano over that. Yeah. I have, you know, it's just, with a string quartet or something like that, there's there's at least one degree of separation between Beethoven and that work, right? Whereas Beethoven's piano works, I mean, it's literally like brain to fingers to keys, 
and you have yeah. the sonatas. So I, I always find myself falling back on those for, for, you know, like Beethoven listening when it's, when it's not the symphony. And like you took a class on the Beethoven piano sonatas, was mm-hmm. it? Yes. Yep. I took a class on the Beethoven string quartet. Ah. <laughs> so we're like the perfect pair of tuppers. Just the late string quartets, they sound like they sound like Schoenberg sometimes. They totally do. They, and you're just like, what is this? And then when you say, like, even like I still get confused sometimes when I hear the late string quartets, where I'm like, this this isn't Beethoven. And then I get we get into it some more and you're like oh my god i'm i'm very confused i thought yeah. i knew music, well, but i guess some I context <laughs> for the listeners so schoenberg is a 20th century composer and he is attributed with creating um 12-tone music or or what we might refer to as um serial music or atonal music um yeah like beethoven in his later works just started um playing around more with, like we talked about earlier, musical fragments. Um, Some of them which made sense in a tonal context, and some of them which... (laughs) Which really didn't. Yeah, which quite frankly don't. Um, So yeah, that's that's the comparison that that Sam is trying to make. But let's leap on over to Brahms. So um, Billig Symphony going to be performing uh, Brahms' first symphony, along with Beethoven's fifth uh, piano concerto, The Emperor, on April 13th, but let's let's talk a little bit about Brahms Symphony Number no. One. What is what's your favorite part of the symphony and why? So I'm gonna be basic and say I think the opening, duh, with the timpani and the strings just like crying on their instruments, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my god, Claire Schumann, I love you. And um, I also love the, I call it the Brahms Eau de Joy mm-hmm. in the last movement, where it, like when I hear it at the beginning, I'm like, oh, it's Eau de Joy. I'm like, oh, no, 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 definitely Brahms one. So uh, I would have to say those are my two favorite parts of Brahms one. But I haven't, Brahms one, I haven't played too much. And I don't, it's not the symphony that I go for immediately. I know a few of my friends are diehard Brahms one fans, and I'm a diehard Brahms four fan. Mm. but. You know, so I, I'm interested in like the flute parts because, like you said earlier, Beethoven and Brahms didn't particularly write tons of stuff for the flute alone. Right. But you do have the symphonies. So, flute perspective, what's what's your favorite part? Right. Well, I mean, it would be as a flute player, you can't ignore Brahms four because there's that gorgeous solo in the fourth <laughs> movement. That's really I love the it. only. That's the I love it. yeah. It's the only real like Brahms flute moment that we have. But from the first symphony, it's funny, you mentioned the the first and the fourth movements. I, like, I just totally love the inner movements. Yeah, they're, of, they're good. They're of those so symphonies good. Because people tend to overlook inner movements of symphonies. I mean, it, even when you look at Beethoven, you know, people are always talking about, you know, like, the first movement of the Eroica symphony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or duh. the first movement of the fifth symphony. Or, yeah. consequently, the last movement of the fifth symphony. Because it's yeah. that whole going from... Um, like sadness in a minor key to um, you know, jubilation in a major key, which is totally what happens in yeah. Brahms' first symphony. But then yeah. the inner movements, the second and the third movement, the second movement you have this gorgeous um, slow movement, right? Very introspective, like sinuous in the tonality, right? Yeah. In the outer movements, 
you definitely you have some sense of adventurousness in tonality, but really, I mean, the the purpose of the first and fourth movement is to kind of beat the tonality into your brain. The second and third movements get to explore a little bit more, especially the second movement of this symphony. Yeah. And then the third movement is just this cute little like lilting. Yeah, um, I love you I know, love Brown's just, third movement. It's just kind of jaunty, them. you know, and so it's it's things like that where it's. I love the the levity that Brahms gets in those yeah. inner movements. Yeah, um, I agree. But of course, the outer movements are are what make the symphony and make them great and fantastic and memorable. Yeah, yeah. So with all that said, the title that the Billing Symphony has given this concert is just Beethoven and Brahms, right? I mean, how's that? You don't, for- <laughs> you don't need anything else. <laughs> right. Like- so like, why why doesn't this concert need a flashy title? You don't you don't need it. Like you just be like, hey, like it's two great pieces. Like you're going to love them. So get your butt in the Alberta Bear Theater and watch it. Right. No, like, I totally agree. I think if yeah. I hear if I hear the word Beethoven attached to a concert, duh, I'm gonna go. Right. I'm gonna, gonna go. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna figure it out. If I hear the word Brahms attached to a concert, duh, I'm gonna go. You're gonna hear some great music. Then you get those concerts where it's like Beethoven and Brahms smashed together. And I know that, like you said, I just, I have to be there. <laughs> you have to go. And the great thing, um, if you'd kind of decide to go to the Billings and Bing last minute, there are tickets up in the balcony that you can get for $10. Mm-hmm. So they're not too expensive and makes for a perfect, it makes for a perfect evening. Honestly, honestly the balcony seats are, are like better. the best like seats in the house yeah. for sure. Yeah. Because, you know, by the time the sound gets up there to you, everything is like washed together and you're just hearing like this pristine version of what's happening on stage. Not to say that the folks who who sit down on the floor level are missing anything, you know, I mean, they're no. certainly closer to the action. But I think, you know, for for a listener's perspective, like the balcony is where I want to be at. Totally. If you if you want a sound bath, right. <laughs> go up in the balcony. Ten dollar tickets. Right. No excuses. Get them. Exactly. <laughs> and if you need an excuse, both Sam and I are going to be playing on this concert. Uh, I have a, yeah. a gorgeous little solo in the uh, in the fourth movement. And some cute little exposed parts in the rest of the symphony. And Sam is gonna be there. Shedding away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm in the practice room already for it. (laughs) Just like you're you're like, Brahms one, yeah. And then you get the music and you're like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. All right. Well, that concludes this podcast. Like we said, if you need an excuse, find one. Be there. (laughs) Uh, there. The Billing Symphony presents Beethoven and Brahms, April 13th. The downbeat is at 7.30 at the Alberta Bear Theater. Concert cues are at 6.45. And we will see you there for a fantastic program. Hello, ladies and men and non-binary friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Symphony Sit Down. If you have any requests for future episodes, comment below or send us a message on our Facebook or Instagram. If you're interested in sponsoring Symphony Sit Down, send us an email at symphonysitdown at gmail.com. And as always, like this episode and make sure to subscribe and share with your friends. We upload a new episode every other week. Take care and have a wonderful day. Musically yours. Sam and Tyler.